Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hello, my name is Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist and welcome to the next episode of the Exponential Minds podcast. Today is a bit of a remix. Uh, I'm bringing back uh, my friend, Marianne Lefebvre, who's uh, an architect, futurist, and healthy city design expert. She's got over 10 years of experience in climate mitigation and sustainable city design. After a career in structural engineering, renewable energy consultancy, and futurism, she returned to her first love of city design. She, uh, she works for a company, Healthy City Global, and she was just telling me that she just recently joined ISOCARP and is part of their international working group on urban health. Welcome back, Marianne. It's great to chat to you. Hi, it's great to chat to you too. The yeah. world is a little different from last time we spoke. <laughs> yeah, so so literally, I, I was reviewing our, our great chat on, on healthy city design before, and, and then I was thinking, well, this is great, but we need to revisit this and we need to make it current mm -hmm. uh, because we can't just release that because it was a very different world right back at the beginning of February when we spoke. So this is a remix. <laughs> so this is a remix of our chat. Uh, but it's a remix in the in the strange, heady times of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're both here up in Canada and Toronto. Uh, we're not too far away from each other, but we can't see each other because of social distancing and isolation. But, you know, what what's going on in your world right now? I mean, you know, the healthy city is what we're trying to attain. It's this new pinnacle of, of, of the, this crisis we're going through. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I think a lot of the <coughs> That's right, start again. Yeah. So yeah, um, I think a lot of the things we spoke about last time are still very relevant, if not even more. Um, I think there's two big trends that I'm seeing right now um, with the outbreak of COVID-19. And that is that I think almost everybody is personally experiencing the fact that we don't live in healthy cities and we don't live in cities that are designed for people and nature. And that was a point I made last time too, is that if we want to build a healthy city, we need to build a city that actually where the priority is space for people and space for nature, because those are the cornerstones of our health. And with, you mentioned social distancing, and I just want to touch on that. I'm not, I keep stumbling over the terminology of social distancing. It's definitely physical distancing. Um, and I think that would be a better word because we don't want to distance ourselves socially. If you look at how many happy hours and Zoom birthday parties and whatever we're organizing, I think today more than ever, we sense our need for community. Right. Um, and that is something when we tie it back to city design, it's something that our cities are no longer designed for. We don't design for a sense of community, a sense of belonging in your neighborhood, in your, in your area. Um, and I think today that's even 
that even comes out more and even sharper than before. Um, I don't know my neighbors, for instance. I live in a condo tower downtown Toronto. I don't know my neighbors. I reached out to them to see if they were okay and they needed help, but I don't even know their names. Shame on me for sure, but <laughs> it's, it's just that idea of in times of crisis, but also in general, we need a community around us. It's just because we are social beings. Humans are social beings. And when we say social distancing, it kind of sounds like we cannot even talk to each other anymore. It feels like we need to isolate ourselves from each other. But that's not true, is it? It's just a physical part of it. So anyway, that's my little rant on the social distancing. <laughs> no, I, I, think it, I think it's really important. And this is what I'm saying. You know, the industrialized world has driven compartmentalization, densification, separation, and increase of feelings of isolation in the urban context. You know, we need to break that pattern. We, we're literally forced into this world. So I, I, I recently moved from uh, a loft into a, a, a three-bedroom house, and I live on a street. And what's really interesting is people come out onto their, their, their porches, and everyone chats and brings their dogs out, and there is physical distancing, and, and that's okay. But there's, if you actually look at the space that we've got and we're using, you know, three-quarters of it is a road. Yeah, and I think that's a really great point that you're making there. It's something that I've been running into personally too, but I've heard from a lot of people around the globe um, that they're running into the same thing. As I said before, our, our cities are not designed for people. Our cities are designed mainly for cars and logistics and infrastructure and utilities and all of that, the supporting systems. And right now the streets are almost empty and we cannot go out for a walk because the sidewalks are literally that small that we cannot walk and keep our physical distance that we need. So police are saying you should stay at home and they're closing down parks, they close Trinity Bellwoods, they close Trillium Park down by the water because there were just too many people out and about. Um, and I think that's not a problem that is necessarily specific to the current pandemic crisis we're in. It's a, it's a problem that is always there, but now it's just exacerbated because we have nowhere else to go. So all of a sudden, everyone in Liberty Village, the area where I live, which is a pretty dense area, everyone goes to that same like 600 square foot park, so to speak. So yes, it becomes really crowded, but it just shows an underlying need of more space for pedestrians, for cyclists, more green space, um, where we can actually breathe. Because now we notice that the cities we live in, they're not very breathable yeah. when it and, and comes what, to our health and well-being. Yeah, and what's really interesting is, you know, the, the government advice is, you know, stay at home, you know, like you know, everyone's vigorously, you know, sort of swearing and, you know, stay the F at home and whatever. And it's like, it is because there's a fundamental failure in the design of the cities as you design. But here's the question that I have for you. Is COVID-19, this pandemic, is it suddenly going to hit the urban planners table, you know, in the city and start a conversation about how the city is completely focused around vehicles and logistics, and not around people? I mean, are, are you seeing any sort of noise out there? You know, I know urban planners like yourself yeah. and, and the, the thought leaders are saying, yeah, we've got to address this. But our cities, um, even even paying attention to the smart people like yourself. Um, 
thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a very good. <laughs> that's a very good question. Um, I think there is two sides of it. Yes, I am seeing an increased notion of we've forgotten about our health and we're not in a good place. So how can we turn this around? Definitely. Um, I am very aware that I do live in like everyone else. I live in my own speech bubble, in my own echo chamber. So I hear a lot about healthy cities in general, um, just because of the people that I know in my network. But I do see an increased attention for it from city governments all over the world, from um, think tanks, from organizations. Um, I think like the World Health Organization has had this healthy city program for over 30 years, but it never really picked up to the pace where, or, or the attention that it deserved. I think that might change. That might change for sure. There have been, you have to think of this as, there was already a growing, um, a growing awareness around the topic of healthy city design and the correlation between our health and well-being and the environments we operate in. I mean, the, the whole healthcare sector has um, this notion of social determinants of health that they didn't have so many, like a few years ago, where it actually states that our physical and mental health is not only a result of our body being our genetics and, and our behavior, how well we take care of it and if we smoke or not or how healthy we eat. So the healthcare sector has already opened up this perspective a few years ago on what they call social determinants of health, where you look at what else is influencing our health. For instance, financial well-being has a major impact on mental health and well-being. Um, where we live and play and air pollution, environmental pollution in general, air pollution, sand pollution, water pollution, has huge impact on our health and well-being. So there was this growing awareness of maybe we're looking at health and well-being um, in a perspective that is too narrow. And, and so that was on the healthcare side, but also on the urban design side, there has been this growing movement and this growing awareness of, as urban planners and designers, we kind of forgot about the people along the way, which is kind of interesting because if you look at where our profession originated from, it actually originated as an answer to previous pandemics. So oh, the, the, yeah, so for instance, some of the cholera pandemics in the 1800s and, and that's like sanitation, uh, sewage infrastructure, that all emerged as a planning tool and a, a result of planning that was one-on-one -on -one the, the consequence of earlier pandemics. But then things got really well, our sanitation improved, and our, sh our focus completely shifted away from health and well-being and from people. Um, and I think now I've seen over the past few weeks, I've seen more articles pop up around this this topic and I think a lot of people are starting to realize how far we diverge from it and that we do need to take a look at it again. So if anything, I think this might be an accelerator for an already ongoing trend more than anything else. To your question, will it actually change something? That is something I'm really struggling with. Um, <laughs> yeah. I see a lot of articles, and I think you recently posted something about that too, in the same, in the same line of the train of thought that I had. Is there are so many articles about, do we want to go back to business as usual after this? We should have changed. And I've seen ideas from, we should nationalize all the airline companies and the big oil companies so we can phase out uh, 
fossil fuels to we need basic income to like all these really big ideas. Mm. I don't think that by the end of 2020, we'll have any of that for sure. Um, I don't think we'll all of a sudden see massive shifts. And why not? Because in every one of those articles, this, I see the same line of thinking. Government should, industry should. And I think as long as we, the people, keep looking at everybody else to change something, nothing's gonna change. I think if there's anything we can learn from this crisis, it's really about asking ourselves for every decision we make in our lives, in our jobs, for our children, for our families, our friends, for everything we do, we should ask ourselves, how is this impacting the health and well-being of myself and the people I care about? Yeah, and doing the right thing and, and making the right choices and eating the best exactly. food and restricting the amount of travel and maybe we choose electric vehicles. Exactly. Uh, maybe we maybe we, we jump on a bicycle you know that's a pretty radical thought for for, for many many yeah. people i i do maybe think that a, a, a travel maybe we don't need that life-changing trip to bali to go sit in a resort somewhere maybe a holiday in your home is also really nice it just depends on what what do we value and i think that might be something that i think if there's one thing we could learn it's really about what like for myself on a daily basis, I try to be mindful and ask myself, what do I like about this crisis? And for instance, I like spending time with my daughter and seeing her grow up and not spending mm. just an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening with her. I like the fact that my husband and I don't have to travel as much and we're home. Like it's kind of a nice feeling. So I think for all of us, there is something that we can learn from it, especially here in the, in the more affluent places. Because something that I wanted to touch on uh, earlier on when you, we were talking about physical distancing is that I've been struggling a little bit with the way, with the way we've responded to this crisis. It's very much decided from an affluent Western or global North perspective, I guess. Like retrieving your house, like you were saying, stay at home. That's great if, first of all, you have a home. Secondly, that home allows you to live with your family in a, in a way that doesn't drive everyone mad. Like we don't live with 15 people in a house. We don't live in any type of informal setting like slums or refugee camps where even washing your hands on a regular basis is a privilege. Right. So, so there's this complete, this kind of um, schism between how affluent developed com um, regions, let's call it, because it's not even countries, um, regions can respond to it, and how there's a whole part of the global population that cannot respond to it in the same way. That's right. So I think that's something that we need to bear in mind too. And it's not just the global south. I mean, if you look at all the informal settings that have popped up over the years in San Francisco and LA, same story. Um, so yeah, it's. It, I think that's also something that's really interesting about this crisis and how we design our cities and how inclusive or non-inclusive they are. Like if you look at Toronto, for instance, where we are, I mean, rising housing prices have been an issue for a long time. But now that people are being um, temporarily fired from their uh, jobs, you notice how 
painful the situation has gotten because e even one week or two weeks is enough to put people out of their houses like that's, that's how small the margin is yeah absolutely the, the the fragility of the world i mean i just just a short time ago my my tenants i own a place in vancouver i guess um they they emailed me and i thanked them for emailing me and telling me that you know, they, they, they both worked in retail, they both lost their jobs, they said that they could make the, the next rent payment, but they didn't know what they were going to do for the months afterwards. So I was like, huh, well, you know, one, you, you've got to dial up your compassion, right? And you've got to really understand. And then you've got to try and work out what to do. And it's like, okay, um, I worked something out and I had to work it out. I had to make concessions myself and I, I reduced their rent for the next three months. And in three months time, we'll revisit that, that, that conversation. Right. And hopefully within, within three months, well, three, it'll be four months. They'll be back to uh, working again and, and all will be good. And, and, you know, it wasn't until like three weeks later, I spoke to the bank and got a reprieve on a bunch of stuff there as well. And sort of, balance was insured but it's not even it's, it's not even people that are in poverty i'm looking at a lot of poverty around the world and these people are literally on the knife's edge but i think that the, the knife's edge way of living goes all the way into the middle class as well right yeah you know. totally totally if anything like i've been looking at how different countries have responded to the crisis because i think it's really interesting because this is this is a threat that comes from the outside, right? It's not a, it's to a certain extent, it's not a man-made threat and it treats us all equally, which yeah. I think is very interesting from a futurist perspective. Um, but what it does is it shows the fragility of the supporting systems of different countries. Like for instance, if I look at how Belgium, my home country, um, responds to this, like if people lose their job because they're technically unemployed, unemployable right now, there's a system for that. Healthcare, like Belgium has 11 million uh, inhabitants and they have twice as many ICU beds as the province of Ontario, which has 13 million uh, people in it. So we have a huge capacity in Belgium because we have such heavy support systems. But then if you look at the US, in a matter of a few weeks, over six and a half million people have applied for unemployment. That's more than any of the previous crises. It's the rate that we're, we're seeing right now is when we were in the world wars. That's the, the crisis we're in. And it just shows the complete um, hollowing of certain systems. And the country as a whole might look as if it's doing really well because GDP is looking really good but if you but i think what's really interesting is that covid has really dropped the veil on a lot of developed countries and showed that maybe they're not as developed as we thought we were because our systems are very fragile and like you saying that knife's edge is much much closer as we actually talk it's not a matter of being able to uh, bridge a few months it's a matter of bridging a few days or a few weeks and that's it so it's kind of it kind of shows that pivotal point we've been in for a few decades now um, where our old systems are all kind of decaying and they're not really working anymore and they're definitely not great at answering some of the challenges like climate change but definitely also this one um, so from that perspective I think there might be some changes down the road 
although it will be slow changes because they are so massive and they are so intrinsic to our entire society so it's not going to be overnight but i do think the world will be different after this i do think yeah. that when we went into slow uh, like social isolation the world changed overnight how it has changed that's going to be really interesting <laughs> an interesting question and we'll see how it pans out but yeah it's not the same for sure um just because it has really showed us it kind of hit us in the face with you're not in a good place and there's yeah. no denying it anymore i mean th this is this is the whole crux of, of pain and the struggle of, of the modern world you know uh, you look at you look to i think sweden is finally sort of taking this a little bit more seriously but they're like yeah but you know we're just going to continue doing what we're doing because we've got capacity to deal with it it's like okay that's really interesting. And then, you know, 2000 scientists sort of <laughs> write a letter to the prime minister and said, you know, actually it's not a good idea just to act like this. And maybe we need to be a bit more uh, precautious here. But a challenge back to you, Marianne. How does urban planning fix this? It isn't something that on its own can truly, truly fix. But there's a democracy from urban planning that, that, that's, a, that's a great leveler in, in a city context. No, that's actually a really interesting question. I think you're right. Urban planning in itself won't fix all of this, obviously. I don't mean to attach more importance to it than it holds. But I think we cannot underestimate how our behavior and our lives are strongly influenced. Even the way we think about politics or the way we think about um, diversity and society is influenced by where we live and how we live. It's that notion that, for instance, if you live in um, big metropol uh, metropolitan areas, you have a, people have a tendency to be um, more liberal, whereas the, the rural areas have a tendency to be a little bit more conservative. So I do think that urban design and urban planning has a really big role to play here because the way we've designed our cities now is very much on the, on the separation side of things. We've segregated different groups of people. We've segregated different functions in a city. This is where you work. This is where you play. This is where you live. And you take your car to commute between them. Like that separation of everything has made us less empathic. It's made us more stressed out. It's made us less healthy in many different ways so i think if urban design or urban planning can do one thing it's bring people back together like you were saying before on the street you live on where people are sitting on their front porches and they're actually being able to like you just moved in and still you are able to get to know your neighbors and maybe even more now than you would have before but that is because of how the streets and the houses are designed in your neighborhood because they were designed in an era where the city was designed at a human scale. And that's typical for those like inner city suburbs. But if you go to the outer suburbs, that's a whole different story. Yeah, where, where the, the houses are so far apart. Yeah, yeah everything's so far apart, you don't have that interaction. It's really, really hard. So I think the role of urban planners is really to bring back, to open up the discussion and bring back the notion of human-centered design in cities. 
it's about place-based design. How can we make sure that people feel a sense of belonging in their neighborhood? How can you make sure that people feel rooted in their community? And all of that, although they might seem buzzwordy and like kind of theoretical concepts, they are crucial to our health and well-being um, and how our society will move forward. If we live closer together, and I don't mean physically closer together, but mm -hmm. mentally closer together and socially, we do understand each other a little bit better. There is more social cohesion. It's kind of, I think the challenge we face as urban designers is how can we bring some of the good things of the village we used to have back into the mega cities and the, and the mid-tier cities that we're seeing right now? Because we kind of threw away the child with the bathwater, right? It was like, oh, the village, blah, 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 up, wiped it out. And then we designed these cities that were like masterminds. Um, but now we're starting to understand that maybe we could have learned a little bit more from the notion of that old notion of the village than we did. And there were some things that worked really well um, that we should try to bring back into a large city context. I think some, somebody, like it's been a concept that's been growing for a number of years, but I think Paris's mayor has really hit the spot uh, right now with her 15 minute city idea. Barcelona is working on something similar, Portland is, Ottawa is. So a lot of cities are jumping the wagon on this. And what it is is really, how can we design a city where within 15 minutes of walking or cycling from your home, you have access to all the basic needs? that need to, you need to support your life. And that's not just healthy food and healthcare, but that's also education, that's entertainment, that's work, um, that is uh, mobility and transportation. So it's a lot of different things. Um, and I think we're, this was already a trend, but I think it'll become more of a trend even now because we wanna kind of downsize our cities in a way. I'm really glad that you brought up the idea around what Paris is planning with Paris on Commune, uh, the, the idea of hyper-proximity, right? The 15-minute the city concept has actually been grounded in the way that they've thought about cities for quite a long time, right? You know, within 15 minutes, you can learn, work, share, reuse, get supplies, take in the air, self-develop, connect, look after yourself, get around, spend, and eat well, right? You can get access to anything. Um, and that, that's 15 minutes on foot that's not a 15 minute drive from a to b right and then on on the flip side you've got places like palm springs which is like you know locked communities and it takes you 25 minutes to walk to the uh, the golf clubhouse to go and work out um through streets that are designed with nowhere to walk it, it's kind of so weird like these different worlds but what's really interesting is that ecological transformation of the city right it's urban life planning it's it's human-centered design but how do, how do we break the cities that are already built to, be, to work in, in new ways? Can we, can we break it and, and reconfigure it with, without having a, a major uproar from the people that, that work in those cities? The question is, what do, what do the people who work in those cities want? And maybe we don't realize what we want exactly or, or what it could look like, but... I think Barcelona is taking a really interesting approach to, the, to this transformation. They started it from a mobility perspective. So they completely redesigned and rethought what mobility looks like in their city. And they started this concept of mega blocks, super blocks. Yeah, where they're kind of 
pushing out transportation, like kind of true traffic to the big major roads. And within every block, I think it's like three by three building blocks, something like that, that's the grid. Every three by three building block is a super block. And within that super block, there is a 10 kilometer an hour speed limit, and it's very much designed for pedestrian and cyclist traffic. And that's maybe an interesting way to start because everybody's working on mobility plans and mobility is an issue in every city around the world. Mm. So maybe that might be a great way to start looking at why are we building more ring roads when we could also take a completely different approach to, um, to freeing up space for, for cycling and walking. And then there's this really interesting notion about work that I think it's something that I've been thinking about a lot in uh, the previous months. And now it's really come to kind of sort of a climax with everybody having to work from home. Like we've, we've all heard the story of WeWorks and how it's not, um, not profitable at all and like the whole all challenges that they were facing. And when you look at the 15 minute city, it's kind of interesting because it says that within 15 minutes of walking or cycling from your house, you should have access to your work. But does that mean that you need to find a job within 15 minutes? Because that really limits your chances. That's not really realistic. Or does that mean that you have access to public transit that will take you to a job somewhere further away, but then we're still commuting like we did before. So what's the benefit there? Or is it something that maybe we could think about we like kind of WeWorks 2.0 or co-working 2.0, where we think about what does a community co-working space look like within your 15 minute neighborhood, where your community is not the people you work with, but the people you live with. Your neighbors are actually your community and you work for a different company, but you work remote. And maybe you have to go into the office once a week or twice a week. But I think there might be an interesting exploration possible on how will, if we want to achieve this kind of 15-minute city idea, how will that have to change how we look at where and how we work? What does remote work look like? We've all had challenges in the past few weeks with working from home and toddlers running around or um, Zoom that wasn't working. Like, clearly, we're not there yet on remote working. But yeah, so I think there is an, a potential to, from an urban perspective, and that kind of ties into the question you asked before, like how, what's the role urban planning can play in this shift? If we think about this 15-minute city, it's not just a spatial redesign of the city. It's a complete redesign of how our society works. It's a redesign of how logistics works. Maybe there is a local manufacturing and logistics hub that actually prints a lot of the stuff that you order online. It's 3D printing. Maybe there is a community hub that is a mobility hub, but that has your neighborhood co-working space, that has local services that are linked to it, that like it, it kind of becomes this really interesting notion of, where does city life take place? Where does your neighborhood life take place? What's the core of it? Is it the downtown core, like 50 kilometers down the road? Or does every city have, and every neighborhood has their own kind of small scale community center where a lot of different things come together? But that touches on every aspect of our life. It's not just space and urban planning. It's a lot of different things. Yeah, and this comes back to human freedom, right? And uh, how do we design freedom for the modern world and uh, during the pandemic or not? And I think that it's more contentious when we're thinking outside of 
the confinements that we currently find ourselves in into what this new world is, well, what the new world can be with a revolution in, in our thinking. If you were going to give like one piece of advice to, to you know, municipal planners, people in cities that are looking at, at, at the COVID situation, realizing that there's these problems, you know, what's that one piece of advice that you'd give them? If there's one piece of advice I could give, um, I think it would be, please, please ask the question for every decision you make, ask yourself, how will this impact community and population health and well-being? And bring different disciplines together. If you're doing the infrastructure project, great, but bring the public health department in on it. Bring Parks and Rec in on it and see how you can create multiple benefits on climate, on health and well-being, on spatial infrastructure. Um, can you bring everything together? The challenges we're having are much broader than one department can solve. We need to work together. So ask ourselves, how is this going to impact health and well-being? Because everything impacts our health and well-being. Well, on that, I think that's, a, that's an amazing uh, place to just sort of wrap up our, our chat. And I, I feel that we're going to have to have many, many more chats, Marianne. This is already the second one. And this is going to be out in the wild within a week or so. So this is great. I'd, li I'd like to thank you, Marianne Lefebvre. Um, amazing chat. Uh, great friend. Uh, I, I love chatting to you. I always learn something. Let's get back to what, what's most important, and that's, that's the human race and how we can come together and, and live, in a, live in a world where we can connect, be socially, be part of a social system that actually improves the world, right? Likewise, I always love chatting with you too, always inspiring. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, thank you very let's much, Let's keep Marianne. it up. <laughs> yeah, let's keep okay. it up. Uh, thanks very much, Marianne, and uh, I look forward to chatting to you very soon. Ciao,